Hey everybody, this is Nick Padiak. You're listening to I'll Be Damned. Uh, my guest today is John Marshall. He is an assistant professor at the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University in Evanston. And uh, I knew John from my time there at Medill as a, as a grad student, so I was very happy to uh, go to his office on campus and talk with him and, and catch up with him again. Uh, I had a bit of a cold when I went there, so you're going to hear me sounding a little bit like uh, Kathleen Turner in this chat. Uh, but I'm feeling better now. Thanks for asking. Uh, I really wanted to talk with John, uh, I wanted to talk with him as a journalist and as a, as a journalism educator about this this pretty odd and important time for American journalism, considering our uh, political climate and uh, attacks on the free press and, and all that stuff. And I was I was really glad to get his insights into this. Uh, so. I hope you enjoyed that chat. Uh, a few little personal asides here. Thank you very much for listening. This is coming up on two years now since I started doing I'll Be Damned, and, and I'm really glad that, that you're with me, whether you were there from the beginning or you're, you're just joining me now. It's it's a real pleasure to get to do this, and thank you for uh, for joining me here. Uh, if you haven't yet, please do subscribe to the show and leave a review if possible. It's much appreciated. And if you want to get a hold of me, I am on Twitter at NP. Padiac, and you can also check out my website, uh, nicholaspadiac.com. Also, if you enjoyed episode 22, my talk with Jen Willie, who's a, a life coach and a friend of mine, uh, I was just featured on her podcast, which is called First and Foremost. Uh, you can get that anywhere you're listening to this, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, etc. Uh, it was a really fun chat uh, about self-care and, and psychological preservation and all that sort of stuff. So uh, check out Jen and, and her show and all of the work that she does there. Thank you, as always, to Matt Pickett for the I'll Be Damned theme song and to Alex Johnson for the cover art. And here we go. Enjoy my chat with John Marshall. Let's do it. So, John Marshall, thank hey, you Nick. for uh, <laughs> thanks for uh, for meeting with me here. So, your title here at Medill is associate professor. I am an correct? assistant professor. Assistant professor. Medill, right. Okay. When I was here in 2010, you were like part of an you had more of an administrative role. I want to say, is that correct? I was when you were here. I was coordinator of the introductory program in the graduate uh, school that we called Journalism Methods. Uh, yeah. So okay. I organized speakers and. Made sure all the classes were running smoothly and workshops and, and so forth. And then after you left, I was, uh, for about two and a half years, the director of the graduate program, oh. which I did until January of 2017, in which wow. case I decided I had enough of administration. <laughs> uh, and it was fun while it lasted, but I wanted to get back into the classroom and teaching and also more time for research and writing for myself. Gotcha. So the classroom is kind of where you think your heart lies? That, that's the fun of it, is, yeah. is working with students and seeing the kind of progress they make and uh, sharing ideas with them. Was that always part of your goals, a part of your career track to, to teach? It, I, when I graduated college, I was a history major, oh, wow. and I honestly had really no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I knew I liked learning things and that I had a curiosity about the world and 
I knew I enjoyed writing. Uh, so I worked uh, for a couple of years as a research assistant at the Kennedy School of Government because mm. I was also very interested in politics and foreign policy and so forth uh, and worked for the dean there and uh, learned a lot. Uh, but I was also getting restless uh, while, while doing that. So I spent a year after that teaching in western Kenya in a small oh, wow. rural high school, uh, very uh, school with uh, kind of mud floors and, and no windows and no electricity or running water. Wow. Uh, so a very kind of isolated rural area. And that is where first I discovered I really liked teaching uh, and found that very enjoyable and also rediscovered an interest in, in writing about the world. And uh, I started to write some articles while I was there, trying to explain what I was witnessing and hearing uh, for an American audience, which uh, wouldn't necessarily have much of an opportunity to learn about what life was like in rural Kenya. And I uh, came back to the States uh, after a year of doing that and a few months of traveling and decided I was going to have a glorious freelance career. <laughs> And uh, I did do a few articles, but realized uh, how much I didn't know about journalism. And at that point, decided to apply to graduate schools and ended up here at Northwestern at Medill. Oh, you went here for I did for go here. School. Okay. Exactly. Right on. Exactly. And then I did daily newspaper work uh, for a few years, uh, freelanced as a magazine writer, worked for websites. Uh, and during that point, um, once I started freelancing, uh, I thought, oh, you know, maybe I'll try teaching again on the side, and uh, was hired to teach one of the introductory classes here. Realized how That'd much I liked it. Point yeah, yeah. For you. <laughs> Realized how much I liked it. Yeah. Uh, and how much I liked the students here, and apparently they liked me enough to keep hiring me. And that part-time gig became a full-time gig. And, right on. And here I am. Cool. And so you said that now you're you're back in the classroom, and you're also uh, you've got more time to write and do some research. Exactly. So uh, you. Is the book out right now? The book that uh, the Watergate book. The Watergate published? book was published in 2011. Okay, all right. Yeah, uh, yeah. By Northwestern University Press. Cool. So, yep. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I wanted to look at uh, the history of investigative reporting, uh, and to use Watergate as the prism for that, uh, as a real turning point for investigative reporting. So, the book uh, spends a couple of chapters looking at what I call the investigative impulse. Uh, the desire that I think is embedded in uh, journalism to try to uncover things that people in power keep hidden. Uh, and that's been there since the start of American journalism, since the uh, very first uh, newspaper in 1690, uh, who a guy named Benjamin Harris was challenging the colonial government and, and printing things that they didn't like, and they closed it down right away. Uh, but that impulse has continued throughout American journalism. Do you history. find that that is uh, endemic to American journalism, particularly, or or journalism sort of worldwide? I think it's it's there worldwide. But I think in the United States, we've had a really wonderful opportunity because of our constitutional system that values the free press and the First Amendment. It's been easier for American journalists to have that flourish. Mm. Uh, maybe easy is like uh, not a fair word because it's actually always, <laughs> usually actually quite difficult. <laughs> but it's, uh, there's an opportunity in the United States that's, that's been there that hasn't been true for most countries uh, throughout 
throughout throughout history, um, except with a few exceptions. What's interesting in the last few years, thanks to uh, digital media, is it makes it much easier for journalists around the world to cooperate. Mm. And uh, it's much harder for governments to, to suppress uh, the, uh, that investigative impulse. So I think we are now starting to see more of it worldwide uh, being able to flourish. Gotcha. Okay, so I cut you off. You were talking sure, about Sure, yeah, book. I was on my, my, grand, uh, <laughs> my grand story about the history of investigative journalism. So the book starts, uh, starts in 16, 1690 with uh, that first American newspaper. Uh, and then I talk about the, the 1960s, uh, particularly uh, following McCarthyism, and uh, especially during the Vietnam War, when uh, journalists were revealing that what our government and military was telling us about the war wasn't true. Uh, and uh, reporters like David Halberstam, Neil Sheehan, and others went out into the jungles with the troops and, and witnessed with their own eyes and heard with their own ears that the kind of uh, rosy scenario that the, that the Pentagon was saying about how the U.S. was winning the war was a lot more complicated and messy. And that created what was known as the credibility gap between what government was saying and people were starting to realize was true. So in the, starting in the mid to late 60s, there began to be a invigoration of investigative journalism uh, and a much stronger willingness to challenge authority and uh, what government officials were saying. And that terrain is what allowed the kind of uh, strong investigative reporting that occurred during Watergate to happen. And then I talk about what happened during Watergate, the kind of reporting that went on and the, and the impact it had. Uh, but then the second half of the book looks at the impact of Watergate on journalism. And there was a brief flourishing through the 1970s uh, of more and more investigative reporting, but there began to be a backlash after that. Uh, the businesses that were being investigated got much more savvy about uh, controlling information, and governments did too. Uh, there began to be uh, businesses would use lawsuits as a strategy to try to intimidate reporters uh, from uncovering things. And even if the reporters, the journalists, would win the lawsuit in the end, which is usually what happened, the cost in, in money and time of defending themselves uh, began to be a real uh, deterrent uh, for a lot of publications and a lot of news outlets to do more investigative reporting. And then the economics of the news business changed uh, with corporate consolidation, uh, more uh, news companies uh, being publicly held companies that were traded on the stock market, which meant every quarter they tried to wanted to show a profit for their shareholders. And the quickest way to do that is to cut expenses and one of the most expensive things to do as a journalist is investigative reporting. So in, in the short term, they were able to cut some of their costs. In the long term, I argue, it, it did some real serious damaging to the brand of journalism and uh, the ability of, of news outlets to attract audiences. Mm. And what do you see as those effects today? How do you see that uh, playing out today? What we're seeing now, uh, which I talk about a bit in my last chapter, is... Uh, because of the internet, because of digital journalism, uh, there is the ability uh, for basically anybody to do investigative reporting now. Uh, and there's also the ability to learn 
from your fellow reporters around the world. Uh, and there's much easier now to uh, get documents and data. Uh, when I was starting out, I would have to go to some basement office and uh, uh, if I once I if they were willing to give me the information without a Freedom of Information Act request or eventually I got it through a Freedom of Information Act request, I would have to sit in some you know, dusty desk and go through file after file to find the one thing I'm looking for. Yeah. Now there's massive amounts of information online, as we all know, yeah. and I can find in 10 seconds what it might take me a day or a week to find uh, back in the early 90s. So that... that helps investigative reporting be more powerful. The, the global network helps it be more powerful. And we're also seeing a uh, rise in uh, nonprofit funding for investigative reporting. So we have places like ProPublica, uh, which is going gangbusters uh, with its investigations. Uh, Center for Investigative Reporting, which began in the late 60s, early 70s, is a very small operation but they've really been able to expand what they've, what they've done and, and raise more money. Same thing with Mother Jones Magazine, uh, Center for Public Integrity, uh, and, there, and there's really dozens of places like that which uh, are looking for alternative ways to, to fund themselves. And people are, um, hopefully, hopefully I'm not being too uh, uh, Pollyannish about it, are, are, are uh, seeing the value in investigative journalism and, and, and realizing it they need to pay for it. They need to support it if it's going to play a role in our democracy. Yeah. Now, uh, viewed through the prism of a uh, president who has declared the press the enemy of the American people and a sort of what some would view as a rise or a renaissance in, in investigative reporting, um, can you talk about that? Particularly, I'm interested in this uh, piece that you just had published in the Washington Post about uh, – Woodward and Bernstein made one hiccup in their uh, reporting and then it threatened to, de to derail the whole thing. And, and you're seeing sort of shades of that now with the Trump administration. It's happening now with, a, with a, just a much different magnitude um, as well as speed. So when Woodward and Bernstein were investigating Watergate, other reporters were also investigating Watergate as well. Uh, they, they tend to get the most attention, but they weren't the only ones. They, they had a movie made about them. So that that's right, yes. Yeah. When you have Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman <laughs> playing you, yeah. uh, it, it helps. <laughs> they, um, the disadvantage they had is they would publish something and it would primarily only be seen in Washington for mm -hmm. the Washington Post uh, because – they didn't have an internet to post it on. And so it took much longer for their stories to have some impact, which is in some ways a disadvantage, but also an advantage. It, it gave them time to be careful. It gave them time to um, collect threads of the story and build on it slowly. And uh, that time, I think, allowed them to... Uh, not have the pressure to always be needing to have something out that instant mm -hmm. with a story and uh, gave, were protected by their editors as well that if they didn't have the story yet, it was worth taking another day or two to make sure they got it right. Uh, so they, there was an advantage of, of working then without the Internet to, to really solidify what your reporting was. Uh, there's a disadvantage of, at first, 
it's not it's not being spread necessarily to a national audience like a story in the post would today uh, would spread around the world instantly if it was uh, worthy of attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they kind of painstakingly built uh, their reporting and. On the other hand, you had a president who, um, from the time he was a was a congressman, despised the media, and uh, was sure that all reporters were out to get them. Even though he actually enjoyed a pretty favorable press uh, through much of his career, and was actually endorsed by a great majority of newspapers when he ran for re-election, hmm. uh, and actually when he ran for election in 1968 too. Uh, so he. Richard Nixon mostly had good press, but he was really convinced that journalists were out to get him, and, and particularly the New York Times and, and the Washington Post. Uh, and there was some grain of truth in that. The, the Times and the Post were, were much more aggressive than most other publications were. Uh, but despite the fact that he hated the press, he kept it mostly to himself. Uh, uh, in his White House transcripts, his White House tapes, you can hear him uh, just cursing out the media uh, but when he went on TV and, and held a news conference, uh, he was much more under control, and he would let his surrogates uh, take jabs at the media. Uh, but it's nothing like we see now when we have President Donald Trump, who, um, as you say, declares the press to be the enemy of the American people and disgusting and dishonest and uh, tweets uh, himself uh, uh, pummeling a, a wrestler with a CNN logo on his head. Uh, the kind of hostility Nixon had uh, that he kept in private is now constant and public uh, by the president, uh, which has at least two, I think, effects. One is um, he succeeded for a large segment of the American public uh, to really discredit what journalists do uh, and... uh, makes makes uh, a certain percentage of the population suspicious no matter what, uh, no matter how good the reporting is, how, how solid the facts are. And I think that's that's can be very distressing for not just the news industry, but democracy. Uh, it also has the effect, I think, it should force journalists to up their game uh, when you are under that kind of scrutiny. We need to be damn sure that we have our facts straight and that there's aren't holes in our stories. And unfortunately, in, in the 24-7 news environment where there's uh, constant competition to get things up uh, two seconds ahead of your competitor, and there's also, as we talked about earlier, anybody can put stuff up on the Internet and, and uh, uh, send, send stuff out uh, via Facebook or Twitter or, or any other app. Uh, you have people who aren't taking the care with what they put out there, um, either intentionally or not intentionally, uh, putting out crap, uh, which again allows uh, the president and his aides to to uh, be critical of, of what journalists do. Yeah. So I'm interested. You uh, you talked about how, for a large segment of the population, journalism has been discredited. There's the suspicion of it. As an educator, a journalism educator, you're you're helping journalists go out into this environment are you changing anything about the way that you teach students uh, because you're sending them out into this environment yes it's, it's, it's ironic side note is that uh, 
a lot of the uh, that same percentage of the population also thinks that that higher education can't be trusted right. either, yeah. uh, and, and that, that uh, higher education does more harm than good to the country. There's yeah. there's some interesting polling data on that, uh, but I think for us as educators, it's really almost back to the basics uh, in terms of what we need to teach. Uh, we do and we can teach all sorts of new techniques in terms of gathering information, in terms of uh, telling stories in different ways, using different kinds of media, whatever the latest uh, app is. Uh, and it's important to do that. But we can never lose sight that reporting is about gathering information and verifying it uh, to the best of your ability. And when you have a, uh, a portions of the public and you have a president who are constantly watching you and criticizing you, it just becomes ever more important to make sure that you're not sloppy uh, and that you do it right, uh, which is, I think, the point I was trying to make in my article is that when Woodward and Bernstein made a mistake during their Watergate reporting, uh, they had a chance to, to recover, uh, and they learned their lesson, and they were extra careful. And in this environment, uh, even a single mistake can be incredibly damaging. And uh, certainly if you make a mistake, you can't make a second one. Uh, so the kind of careful reporting, making sure you had two independent sources uh, to verify your information, uh, preferably three or more, uh, and to be transparent about what possible axes those people might have to grind as, as sources uh, so your, your viewers and readers totally understand where that information is coming for uh, just, I think, becomes more important now. So as far as what we're teaching, we're, we're still teaching how to be great reporters and, and, and do it right and do it ethically. And then we teach how to get that story out and how to um, respond quickly and, and use social media uh, and use uh, the, the kinds of uh, new inventions that our, that our night lab creates uh, to be at the cutting edge of journalism. But, but we can't lose sight of, of what the basics of good journalism is. Right. I wrote uh, an article for Teen Vogue last year that was about um, – a sort of upswing in interest in journalism mm -hmm. in this age of the press being declared the enemy of the American people. And I started that with just a simple question. I was wondering whether there was an upswing, whether there was a downswing, whether there was any effect at all. And it was found that there is a, a bit of an upswing in, in this. And, and a lot of the people that I had spoken to, the sort of experts in journalism, were, were predicting that this was going to be a sort of uh, renaissance that's similar to the rise in investigative journalism after Watergate uh, with the influx of great talent and, and, and enthusiasm coming into the field. Do you see any of that playing out here? Well, absolutely. We, um, I mean, our admissions numbers are, are as good as ever. Really? And, and the students uh, who are coming in, I find to be more enthused, more energized, uh, more dedicated to doing uh, the kind of reporting that makes a difference. Mm. Uh, so I, I see it in the individual conversations I have with students, the kind of questions they ask. Uh, and what we're seeing with admissions is, is bearing that out. Uh, you know, the, the, the renaissance in investigative reporting, I think, is happening. 
uh, in, in a lot of different ways. Uh, what does concern me and, and I know some of my colleagues is uh, th- reporting on the local level is where uh, we're really seeing a crunch. Uh, small cities, uh, counties, uh, state governments are not getting covered in the same way that they were. So sort of national and international news outlets on the whole are are doing well. Places like the Post, Washington Post, and the New York Times, and The Guardian, and BBC, and ProPublica, and others. Um, and people seem willing to pay for that journalism in different ways. Uh, we aren't seeing the same thing at, at the local reporting level. And a lot of uh, uh, you know, corruption and, and wrongdoing happens uh, in, in, in the small towns, and, and it, it affects people's lives in a big way. So what, what do you see as the remedy for that, or the way forward into making local reporting revitalized? I, I think the remedy is, is um, well, it's twofold. Uh, one is people, if people don't recognize its importance in their local communities, uh, then it's not, it's not going to survive. Uh, so it really is important to help people understand the difference that that kind of reporting makes. Um, I show my, my students a, a Samantha B. Um, uh, segment that she does with a small town reporter in, in some place in New Jersey where he's, he's like a one man show, but he, uh, revealed that, uh, I think I'm getting this right, that like the local water supply was like basically being poisoned, uh, because they weren't, uh, the local government was spending the money in, in ways that wasn't, uh, wasn't actually helping the water supply, but, uh, and they were, uh, not doing their job. And as a result, his community has cleaner water now. Mm. So, you know, that's something that really affects people uh, where they live. Uh, and uh, she did a kind of a cute segment on, on uh, getting the local people to support their hometown paper. Um, so Samantha B. can't do a story about every local uh, <laughs> publication that's doing good work. But I'm, I'm hoping that uh, just as I think people are seeing now the importance of having strong investigative journalism at a, at a national level, they'll start to, s- to see its importance at a local level and, and, um, and support it. And, and interesting enough, is, you know, it's often local businesses that r- recognize the value of what good journalism can do mm. for a community because uh, they see when, when corruption starts to happen and, and things start to fall apart that it's, it's bad for them as well. Uh, so um, hopefully, hopefully, hoping that... Uh, yeah, business leaders as well as civic leaders at the local level um, start to start to step in. Um, the, but the other part of that is um, a lot of the small town publications, uh, their legacy operations. Uh, they are either um, you know family owned businesses um, that have not had a lot of investment, or they're parts of large chains. Uh, who, as I talked about earlier, who have tried to make money by cost cutting mm-hmm. and, and left um, the local reporting thin. Uh, so the the owners of those uh, publications, and it's still often um, a, a, like a weekly newspaper, 
uh, or, or a small daily newspaper mm-hmm. in those kind of communities. Uh, and sometimes it's, it's hyper-local websites. Uh, they need to start being more creative and finding ways to tell their stories and, and, and to find audiences. And I think that's, that's a, a role that places like Medill uh, can help out to, uh, to advise and uh, to uh, you know, show some of the, the latest things that are going on with, with uh, uh, reaching audiences and using technology uh, to help them kind of accelerate into the 21st century of media. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm curious about your thoughts on editorial. I'm trying to figure out the best way to say this. Um, I guess editorial decision making. There's a lot of, especially uh, large press. The New York Times comes under a lot of scrutiny, um, not only from the president calling it fake news, but a lot of people on the other side of the political spectrum are very upset with the way that uh, the Times splashed the Clinton uh, email scandal all over its front mm-hmm. pages. You know, at the end of the election, um, is there is there a way that you are as as an institution, is there a way that Medill is teaching that sort of uh, news sense and and how to uh, how to balance that sort of thing? Is is that coming? Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's a it's a great question, uh, and it's sort of a constant challenge in journalism. Is you have only so many, if it's broadcast, only so many minutes or seconds for a story. Uh, if it's print, only so many. Uh, parts of a of a page um uh, even you know online even though it's it's technically almost infinite what you can do online uh in reality people are only going to read so far in a story mm-hmm. so um finding the balance of what do you include in a story and what do you leave out and out of the stories you have which ones do you put give prominence to and, and don't give is, is an age-old quandary uh, for editors. I think what we're seeing more of in the last few years, um, probably as a result of the election um, and, and you know, other, other stories that have happened in, in, in the last uh, few years, is a greater understanding that giving equal time to all sides isn't necessarily getting at the closest proximity to the truth that you can get to. And I think there was a a notion in in many segments of journalism for many years that the way to be fair and objective was just to do it, you know, he said, she said, uh, and give everything equal weight and kind of let the reader figure it out, uh, which is not really always fair to the reader because they don't have the kind of background or, or time uh, to sort through it all. Uh, and both sides aren't always uh, have as much evidence on their side. And you know, the classic uh, example is, is climate change, where 90, somewhere around 97 to 99% of scientists, um, don't quote me on that percentage, but it, it's up there in the mid to high 90s are you know, saying climate change is real. And to to balance a story fifty fifty with a with a climate change denier is is not serving your audience with the with the closest uh, version of the truth that you that you can get to. Uh, so I think we're talking about that more in journalism that you have an objectivity of method. It's it's, it's like a scientific method. You you look at the information, you weigh it, 
you see how much there is behind it, uh, how much expertise there is, uh, how much data there is, and then uh, including, included if, if, if there is evidence behind it, but uh, to you're in a constant objective search for the truth, and if something doesn't pan out with enough evidence behind it, with enough support, then you don't include it, or you make clear that there isn't the um, same kind of expertise or evidence behind it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we're starting to see more of that in, in, in at least some publications and some outlets. Yeah, that's uh, part of the main crux of one of the things that I wanted to talk with you about, because I feel like that sort of... Uh, giving equal time to both sides sort of thing. Uh, it, it maybe used to work and doesn't anymore. Uh, mm -hmm. And I don't know that it ever really did work, but okay. For, for instance, um, there was a story that just came out a, a couple of weeks ago. Um, there was some uh, restaurant, I think in Texas put up this neon sign of a caricature of a person in blackface. And it said coon chicken in and, journalists had to say what some call a racist sign was put up there. And I wonder in that, that seems objectively racist to me. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it is coon chicken and it is a black face. And yet I think that the sort of classic way of journalism is to say, well, you know, some say that it is, or critics call it this as opposed to just coming out and saying racism. And I don't really know my, how to, how to address that, because I guess some might not call it racism, but it, it just seems like a difficult thing like the, to get at the truth of the matter when it seems as though the truth is out there, but you maybe can't say it. I'm not, I'm not familiar with that particular story. Yeah, it's just an example. Uh, right. It, it's um, based on what you said. Um, I think there's ways to, to, to go at it to say, um, and I don't even want to <laughs> say the words, yeah, because uh, um, I, um, uh, if I'm so offensive myself, but um, I think you can say the name of the restaurant, which uh, for decades uh, many people have found to be highly offensive and mm -hmm. and a slur um, against African Americans, uh, because that is true, mm -hmm. I, um, in. Uh, then you can, you can find uh, uh, enough backing to say that you know this this term is highly offensive to many people. Yeah. Uh, you know what's offensive is always in the in the eye of the beholder, but but I think it, you can say it's an objective truth that it offends a whole lot of people and 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 has been used as a, a slur and a derogatory word. Yeah. Uh, for for a long long time. So I guess the. And, and I think it, with, 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 the, with Trump, what we're seeing more of in the last year, um, whereas a, a previous president might say something and you would just leave it at that. That's the quote. Uh, or maybe later in the story say, oh, there actually happens to be some information that might, might challenge that. Uh, what we've been seeing is uh, the president says this uh, – well, all evidence doesn't support that. Yeah, yeah. So I guess the, I don't know that I would call it a problem, but what some see as a problem is is the, the sort of toothlessness of, of that. And it seems to um, 
discredit or or maybe like there in this landscape this sort of um adversarial landscape against journalism it seems as though uh journalists are sort of like bringing a knife to a gunfight like uh can't can't straight out come and say things like that's a lie or that is racist because those are not objective truths and i don't know a way to marry the fact that journalism has to be based in objective truths with this sort of criticism of like maybe it's not working well i think you can say something is false uh uh or is a falsehood or um or is completely misleading uh you know, you know, lying is using the word lie is tricky because it gets into intent, mm-hmm. and it's hard to know necessarily what someone's intent is. Although the New York Times, a couple of times during the 2016 campaign, came right out and and said uh, candidate Trump is lying about this, mm-hmm. and, and they had a, actually a whole article that they labeled the president's or the candidate's lies, uh, which they would not have done five years ago. Uh, but I think they, they recognized that this is a, happening on a whole different scale and, and, and needs to be addressed. And um, it's interesting, over the fall, we had um, Washington editors of the New York Times and, and USA Today were here, as long as along with the uh, Washington Bureau Chief for the Associated Press. And they were discussing the New York Times. Uh, Elizabeth Bumler was, was saying that, you know, they're are occasions when their executive editor says, you know what, this this is a lie, and we have to say it is. And uh, Susan Page of the USA Today was was arguing, we can say it's false, we can say there's not evidence supporting it, but we can't get into what's going on inside someone's brain to actually say it's a lie. Uh, so is this bringing a, a, a knife to a gunfight? Um, I don't see it that way. I, I think journalism has the power to reach um, hundreds of millions of, of people, billions of people around the world. And um, I think once we, and I'll make a distinction between kinds of journalism as well. The mainstream journalism, once it gets into um, being argumentative in its news pages or in its uh, broadcast news hole, I think it becomes easier to discredit it mm-hmm. uh, and, and not take it seriously. And it, it moves us, I think, away from the mission of presenting the facts as we can find them and verify them. Um, the distinction I would make is there throughout well, journalism history, um, there's been advocacy journalism as well. Uh, doesn't usually get as much attention in the history books and uh, traditionally hasn't gotten as much attention in, in schools like Medill. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you know, Thomas Paine during the Revolutionary War was, a, was an advocacy journalist uh, uh, with his pamphlets uh, you know, saying we should we should rise up against the British and, and the king is horrible and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. The abolitionists before the Civil War, um, people like Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison and Elijah Lovejoy were putting out uh, information that was uh, making very strong arguments 
against slavery and and uh, and that kind of advocacy tradition um, has continued and and should continue and I I think there's really a role for both kinds of journalism and I, I think it's uh, it's a richer journalism world for for an audience when people can when they're looking for an argument find it uh, but they can also turn to places which are trying to the best of their ability um, not to be arguing for for one viewpoint or another but to present the information using an objective method as as much as they can gotcha so what are you uh, looking forward to most for the history of journalism what do you see as the next cool big thing that's going to be coming up in in journalism history journal just in journalism in general what do you what do you think what are you excited about that's coming up whether it's whether it's an event or a new method of dissemination or or some thing that your students are working on or or what what do you i think uh i think the thing that excites me most is uh i talked about this a little bit earlier is the, the kind of global journalism that's going on now. Uh, uh, there's the International Consortium for Investigative Journalism and the, oh my gosh, I'm blowing the acronym, but it's the Global Journalism Investigative Network, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm just blanking on the name, but I, I, I uh, get their emails and check them out all <laughs> the time uh, and I have friends who are involved in it. But anyway, they are both, you know, one supports... Um, it's more like a support group uh, and holds uh, workshops and conferences and, and does a lot of training. Um, and the other uh, does the actual journalism um, together. Uh, so you may be familiar with the uh, Panama Papers uh, mm-hmm. investigation um, uh, where they uncovered that you know, government leaders around the world were stashing their countries riches uh in offshore banks Mm -hmm. uh and literally billions of dollars worth of money being taken away out of out of national economies uh for the uh corrupt benefit of a few people and that's uh those stories have have led to governments being uh uh turned over around the world uh it's had a impact uh in, in many countries uh so a lot of issues don't respect national boundaries, uh, the environment, uh, terrorism, uh, smuggling, uh, nar- narcotics trade, uh, you name it, things cross borders. And the ability now of journalists to, to work together um, and uh, the, the glorious benefits of, of, of the Internet uh, enables them to do that uh, is something that... Um, just couldn't have happened 25 years ago. Uh, and I think that's going to continue to gain steam. Uh, and, and it's not just the, the reporting that, that, that's global now, but it's also the uh, distribution is global now. So uh, if someone uncovers corruption in the Philippines, I can easily read about it here. Uh, whereas uh, during the days of Watergate, a corruption story in the Philippines would probably just stay in the Philippines <laughs> and we wouldn't know about it. But now there's, there's any number of networks that, that, that can spread that information. Yeah. That is really exciting. Yeah. I know you got a hard stop. We can uh, wrap this up. Yeah. Is I there, got a, you got a few. All right. Yeah, cool. I, got a few. Uh, 
I'm curious uh, about a couple of things. One, uh, why Watergate? Watergate seems to be a. I, I see you have all the president's men sitting right over <laughs> right. there to my right, uh, and it, this seems to be a, a sort of um, focus of yours. Why? Why? I uh, was since I was a child fascinated by it. In uh, a funny story, I I was my fifth grade class president. Uh, I ran on the platform of getting um, ice cream as an option for dessert in the school lunch line. Hey, you knew your constituents. I did. Uh, <laughs> you got to serve them where it counts. Uh, but Watergate was going on, and uh, everybody around the country was talking about, oh, should we impeach the president? And so my classmates impeached me wow. in, as, as fifth grade. Impeachment fever. President, yeah. So it, wow. it reached my... Uh, <laughs> my elementary school in Phoenix, Arizona. Wow. They they did it. I didn't commit any crimes, no high crimes or misdemeanors. <laughs> I'm not a crook. And as a, I was not first. a crook. <laughs> but uh, and then a few weeks later, they did reelect me. So oh, it did, okay. it didn't permanently tarnish my my fifth grade <laughs> political career. But it, it's just uh, it's a funny story just to kind of show the impact that Watergate was having yeah. uh, around the country and. Um, then another story, my friends and I would, the transcripts of Nixon's White House tapes were published, and they were like an instant bestseller. Mm. Uh, uh, but instead of including all the um, curse words that Nixon used right and left, uh, they would write expletive deleted uh-huh. in the transcript, uh, which kind of became a joke, because like, pretty much every other sentence had an expletive deleted. <laughs> so my friends and I would, would sit around, uh, it shows how, how nerdy I was, but we would sit around, sit around with the White House transcripts and uh, invent our own expletives, <laughs> our own curse words to use, uh, which as a fifth and sixth grader was, was kind of a, yeah, a, a great way to stretch our vocabularies <laughs> at the time. Uh, you know, on a more serious note, my... Uh, my family was was always interested in, in, in politics, and my mom would watch the, the Senate Watergate hearings on TV every day, and they were going on all summer long in the summer of 1973, and I, I would sit and watch her and, and, and became fascinated uh, by it. So I've always been interested in government and politics, and Watergate uh, was sort of the big event when I was becoming politically aware. Yeah. Uh, and uh, when I had the opportunity to write this book, I just I, I jumped on it yeah. because um, I'm very interested in investigative reporting and, and especially interested in Watergate. Yeah, well, it seems to be a nice little Venn diagram of your whole life. Like you were a history major, exactly. You are into journalism, you know, exactly. it's, and you were impeached. And I was impeached as a fifth grader. Grade. Yes. So there it is. You're the only person right in the middle of that is, is Watergate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, what is the name of the book, and where can people get it? The book is Watergate's Legacy and the Press. The Investigative Impulse, uh, and it's uh, avail- available th- any number of places online. If you go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble or uh, pretty much any online bookseller, it's there. It might still be available in some actual physical bookstores, uh, or you can always order it from a physical bookstore, and I always like to try to promote promote them because yeah, we need go to your we local need, bookstores. We people. need our bookstores. Yeah. Uh, or you can order it directly from Northwestern University Press, and then I keep a few in the trunk of my car if anyone <laughs> I, I, I run into is interested I'll, yeah. I'll sell it to them too. Right on. and are you working on anything now any uh, publications you've got coming out I, I've got a few uh, pots on the kettle but they're not quite uh, at the boiling stage yet so I'm going <laughs> to wait until those are, are, are ready before uh, 
uh, promoting those gotcha. to the world. Right on world. I, want, I want to make sure they're well cooked before I, <laughs> I let people know about it. It's a it. good call. Uh, how, if people want to get in contact with you, you're on Twitter, correct? I am on Twitter um, at Marshall Report. Marshall Report. Yeah. All right, cool. And uh, anything? I feel good. Do you feel good? I feel great. Yeah, right. I asked a lot of good questions. It thank was you. fun talking with you, <laughs> and uh, can't wait to hear it. Right on. Well, thank you very much. All right, thank you, Nick. All right. Bye bye.